So we are few today, so I greet those who are catching us online on the stream. And while we are few, as Brother Mike prayed, we anticipate the day when we will join in the chorus with the great multitudes of the saints. We talked about this last week. Um, We looked at, in Revelation 7, of the Apostle John's vision that he received. The multitude of the saints joined together in chorus, worshiping the Lamb. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we will continue today in Ephesians chapter 1. One of the challenges that I'm running into with preparing to teach out of Ephesians is that Paul repeats himself a lot. And it, it almost feels weird to stand up here week after week and teach you the same sermon. <laughs> um, but I... Remain guided by the word, and as the word repeats itself, so will I. Um, Paul takes care to teach us about the depth of the gospel of Christ in many different ways. He expresses the nature of God's salvation in many different ways, so that through that we may explore the depths of his grace. So just to review where we've been, um, we're going to be in verses 6 and 7 of Ephesians 1 today, and so I'll start by reading the first five verses of Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And Paul goes on, and we will get to verse 6. So last time I was here, which was last week, we were spent most of our time in 
the last two words of verse 4 and in verse 5. And I focused in on the phrase, in love, there at the end of verse 4. And so as a way of review, I want to hit a few of the points that I uh, worked from last week. Um, This love that Paul is talking about in verse 4. There are three observations that I want us to make about the love of Ephesians 1. Um, First, this love is unique to the elect. The expression, the manifestation, the communication, the way in which God loves us, the things that God has done in order to express this particular love are unique to his people. They are unique to the elect of God. And this love is unconditional. This love that God has for his people is not based on anything that he has found in them. Remember we saw in verse 4 that this love is the result of God's choosing us, choosing his people before the foundation of the world. And so because this choice, this election, occurs before the foundation of the world, it cannot be based on merit. We haven't earned the love of God. We haven't earned the election of God. And further, this love is effectual for the salvation of the elect. Because God has loved us, his people, he has done the things that he has promised to do for those he loves. Right? Because God has loved us, his people, he has given us as a bride to his son. Because God has loved us, his people, Christ has washed us in his blood. Christ has secured for his people propitiation, justification, sanctification. All these things he has done on his cross where he died and took on the wrath of God for our sins. And it is in this love that he rose again. So that just as he tasted death and death could not hold him, we will taste death in this life, but death will not hold us. The same power that resurrected Christ from the dead will bring life to our bodies in eternity. Last week we also talked about God's adoption. Verse 5 says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. So one of the things that I wanted us to think about was how if you go out into the world and you um, speak with other professing Christians, with members of other religions, people who generally have a belief in some higher power, you will hear things like, well, we are all God's children. The world will tell you, at least the ones that believe in some God, will tell you that we are all that God's children. And so we explored 
uh, in John chapter 8, how Jesus relates to the Pharisees and how the Pharisees claim to be children of God. And Christ refutes their claim. These Pharisees claim to be children of God on account of two things. One, their works of the law. Right? They claim to be perfectly obedient to the law. They claimed to have been cleansed from all of their sins, if there were any to be cleansed from. And they claimed their relation to Abraham. If you remember in uh, Genesis, it starts in chapter 9 or so, Abraham is given this promise that he would be the father of many nations. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is the father of many nations, is the one who these Pharisees claimed to be descended from. And I'm sure they were. But it is not the children of Abraham according to blood who are the children of God. Right? This is what Jesus refutes in John chapter 8. Instead, it is the elect of God. Those who by faith are children of the promise given to Abraham. God's true children are those who are God's children on account of the work of Christ and their relation to him. Remember, the Pharisees claimed to be children of God because of their own work in their relation to Abraham. And we, the people of God, claim to be children of God on account of the work of Christ and our relation to him. And our relation to him is that we are the bride of Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. And so it is in this that the elect of God, the church, the gathering, they're the only ones with a legal claim to be children of God. Right? Christ is the Son of God. And we claim that God is our Father because Christ is our bridegroom. So that's our review of verses 4 and 5. So getting into the end of verse 5, um, something we didn't get to last week was this phrase, according to the purpose of his will. So the first thing I want you to observe about this phrase, according to the purpose of his will, is that nobody talks like that. Right? Have you ever used that phrase in conversation? Right? We would never say, well, Pastor James decided to paint the walls purple according to the purpose of his will. Why don't we talk like that? Because that's not how we make decisions, is it? Right? We are influenced by all of these outward things. All of our experiences, all of our opinions, our emotions, these things influence the way we make decisions. And so I could not say that I elected to paint the walls purple according to the purpose of my will. Because there are so many other things that influence how I make those decisions. And so when Paul says, according to the purpose of his will, talking about God, he's saying that there's a difference in how God makes decisions. God does not make decisions the way men make decisions. I saw this a few weeks ago. Um, we were in the book of Numbers. We saw that the Lord is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that 
he should change his mind. Right? The decrees of God come down from eternity. The decrees of God are truly and properly free. Meaning that the reason that God has done things because he has a purpose. And he is not influenced by our decisions. He's not influenced by anything outside of himself. So when Paul says, according to the purpose of his will, he is contrasting that with how we are fickle, emotional, mutable beings. So Paul establishes for us there God's reason for adoption. Why has he done these things? Why has he blessed us in Christ? Why did he choose us before the foundation of the world? Why did he make us holy and blameless? Why did he predestine us for adoption? It's that he has some purpose. He has a purpose. It is intentional. He has a plan. And that ultimate purpose would be uh, explained to us here in the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. If you are familiar with some of the catechisms, the first question you'll often see asks, what is the chief end of man? Right? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is echoing what Paul is telling us here in verse 6. The purpose of God's will is that he might be glorified, that we might praise his glorious grace. And for the child of God, this should be a satisfying answer to all sorts of questions. Right? What is the first question that often comes to mind when you face a trial in your life. When you experience pain in your body, when you experience tragedy in your family, we want to know why, right? We want to ask God, why have you done this. And while the details, the explicit answer to that question may not be clear to us, we can find comfort in knowing that God has a purpose in all things. We can find security in knowing that Christ is faithful to fulfill his promises. That Christ will be faithful to preserve our faith unto glory. We can find comfort and peace in knowing that Christ will preserve our faith in the face of trial. The child of God can have full assurance of their salvation, no matter what. But there's something important that I want you to understand. This does not mean. When I tell you that you can have full assurance in the work of Christ, this does not mean that you have to be happy and emotionally stable all the time. 
I've heard so many people say that, you know, if you don't find joy in everything, you don't have enough faith. Enough faith for what? Right? Was Jesus happy and emotionally stable all the time? Sister Karen was telling me before the service that she wanted to read more of Luke. And it's by the Lord's providence that we will be in Luke here for a little bit. Remember, the idea that I want us to get away from is that the peace of God means that we're going to be just okay, happy, filled with joy, no matter what. Because Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, was not. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more Earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is not a picture of a man who has everything in order, is it? No, Jesus Christ was as human as you and I. Jesus Christ, in his humanity, experienced the full range of human emotion and yet was without sin. And so when we look at Jesus and how he's feeling here, we can know that it is possible for us to experience these emotions by the power of the Spirit without sin. Jesus here is faced with knowing what is coming. Jesus knows what is about to happen to him. Verse 44 tells us the drops of blood came out of his face. The advent of medical science, we know what that is and how it happens. The word for it is hematidrosis. You can check the Wikipedia page for it. It says, hematidrosis is a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to evoke the stress, fight, or flight response to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the vessels supplying the sweat glands. It has been suggested that acute fear and extreme stress can cause hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. 
And so here in Luke 22, we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior experiencing the intense mental anguish of knowing that he is about to die. And so to anyone who would look at your anxiety, look at your stress, and just tell you to have a little bit more faith, I would ask them, would you say that to Jesus? Would you tell Jesus that he does not have enough faith? Now, just as I said that we can experience this acute, horrible mental stress without sin by the power of the Spirit, there is, of course, a sinful way to engage with it. It comes down to what you do with it. Philippians chapter 4 Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It comes down to what you do with it. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, if we read Philippians 4 there, and we stop it, do not be anxious, we might say, okay, this is a command of God, do not be anxious, and then if you are ever anxious, then you have sinned. But Jesus was anxious about the impending crucifixion. But what we see in Luke 22 is that what Jesus does is, of course, consistent with the instructions of the apostles here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we see in Luke 22, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so when you have anxiety, when you have this horrible, acute mental stress, the instruction of Scripture is not, choose to feel better. Right? So many people say that that is the solution. That depression, anxiety, it's just a matter of lack of faith, and you need to choose to have more faith. And that is not the instruction of Scripture. Instead, the instruction of Scripture is to lean all the more on Christ in prayer and supplication. To lean on Christ for that supply of faith. To in your agony pray more earnestly. 
so that by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we might come to the conclusion of Job. Remember what happened to Job? We talked about Job a couple, either last sermon or the sermon before. Remember, Job was sick in his body with horribly painful diseases. The author describes Job as sitting in the ruins of his destroyed house, surrounded by broken clay pots, scratching the boils on his skin with the shards of pots. Job had everything taken away from him. And his idiot friends and his wife said, surely you have done something horrible and deserve to die. Why don't you curse God and do so? And yet the Lord appears to Job and speaks to him through the whirlwind. And Job experiences this peace of God. Job experiences the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. When it says surpasses all understanding, that means it doesn't make sense for you to be okay. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know here. And I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Cast your fears on Christ. Cast your anxiety on Christ. Pray more and more. With supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to him. Scripture does not instruct us to just feel better. Just have a little more faith and you'll be okay. Scripture instructs us to pray more and more and it shows us our Savior doing exactly that. (laughs) Moving on in Ephesians. Into verse 7 now. Paul tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood. I was telling Ben before the service started that this sermon was going to be three largely unrelated points. And so now we're going to get into the deep theology of Ephesians 1. We're going to talk about redemption through his blood. And we're going to talk a little bit later about why it is important for us to explore theology like this. To explore the solid food of scripture. But recall from Ephesians 1.4, when we talk about being in Christ, when we talk about God's giving of the bride to the Son... Paul is outlining for us this heavenly transaction, this eternal covenant. 
This deal that is struck between God the Father and God the Son. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. That is, the chosen, the elect of God, the bride of Christ, are chosen in Christ. These are the ones that God has given to the Son. And in exchange, Christ is given the task of cleansing them. So that those who are saved are saved on account of the work of Christ in doing so. That is, that Christ satisfied God's wrath, satisfied God's justice on their behalf. We call this the covenant of redemption. It's an eternal covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father promises to glorify the Son as the bridegroom by giving to him a bride with whom he may enjoy eternal communion. And in exchange, God the Son must do the work to cleanse them so that they may be suitable as a bride and suitable to enjoy the presence of God forever. And our main text for seeing this play out was in John 17, beginning in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Remember, when we talked about this last time, we said Christ is making a demand of his Father. Remember, you read through the Gospels and you see Christ who, according to his humanity, is submissive to the will of the Father. Christ talks about this. And now in John 17, Christ makes a demand. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, and here he goes again, demanding of the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so here we see the Father's end of this transaction. The Father's blessing given in this covenant. The promised glorification of the Son through the redeeming of his bride. And John goes on talking about the giving of this bride to Christ. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so Christ here, praying in the garden, has in mind the work he is coming to finish. He has in mind his work on the cross in enduring the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he tells you who he does this for. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Christ is here to do the work of making his bride clean. He has come for her and her alone. He has come to redeem them. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, In him, 
We have redemption through His blood. He's saying, Christ has done this work. And so what is the challenge in this? Why can't God just declare us clean? God demands justice. Right? Christ is given a work to do. He has to do something. He has to make us clean because we are not clean. The law of God demands that our blood be spilled upon the ground. The law of God demands that we suffer the wrath of God forever because we are cursed in Adam. And by our own will, we sin every day. By our own will, we are unable to meet the demands of the law. We are unable to meet the demands of righteousness. And so Christ must come and justify us. And we see this foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In the covenants of the Old Testament. The covenant of works, you might call it. The sacrifices of the temple. We see this pattern. And Paul explores this thoroughly in Hebrews. Every time I do this, and I have done it before, I'm just tempted to read Hebrews 7 through 11 and just call it a day. Instead, I'll just read Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the law. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is exactly what we see in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, let's talk about the Old Testament sacrifices. I said that these things were a foreshadowing of Christ. When we read the Old Testament, having the full revelation of the gospel of Christ... Being aware of the work of Christ, being aware then that all of these sacrifices are shadows of it, we can go to the Old Testament and in them we can see the gospel of Christ. We can see it plainly because we know. We have been given the gospel. We have been given the revelation of the promised Messiah. The Pharisees did not understand this. The Pharisees did not understand that these works of the law, these sacrifices, were shadows of the promises of the Messiah. They thought they were it. They thought these sacrifices, these works of the law, were the whole point, and that the Messiah was coming to kill all the Romans and save all the people who followed the law. They believed that their works of the law justified them. But we need to have a right understanding of how the works of the law, the sacrifices of the temple, related to the salvation of the Old Testament saints. And I'll just tell you, those who in faith, faith in what? Those who in faith in the promise of Christ subjected themselves to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, found themselves justified on account of the promise of a Messiah whose work is typified in those sacrifices. It wasn't the sacrifices themselves. It was, as Paul tells us in Romans 4, the faith for which they were accounted righteous. We know it couldn't be the sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
It's impossible. God is not pleased in the blood of bulls and goats. And so for the blood of bulls and goats, the wrath of God is not satisfied. Right? Remember, God is just. God demands justice. And so God's wrath must be poured out against all wickedness. God must execute his wrath against all sin. So we might ask the question, what about the Old Testament saints? If God was not pleased in the sacrifices of the law that they carried out, what about God's wrath for their sins? Paul answers this question for us in Romans 3. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First, Paul presents us with the problem. You sinned, they sinned, we all sinned. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And here is where Paul answers the question. What about the sins of the Old Testament saints? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. On account of the faith of the Old Testament saints, they were counted righteous. And God in his divine forbearance, which means he's putting it on hold. He's reserving it for a future time. God withholds his wrath against their sins until the Lamb came. God withholds his wrath against the sins of his people until Christ comes. And then Christ takes on the wrath of God for their sins. This is what the word propitiation means. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of wrath. By his blood to be received by faith. So God's wrath against the Old Testament saints is withheld until it could be poured out on Christ for their sins. And so in Christ, God's wrath for their sins is fully and completely satisfied. And in Christ alone. It's not like they got some credit from killing a bull and a goat. Right, they were counted righteous on account of their faith, and then Christ made the sacrifice once and for all. So this plan of salvation is singular and immutable. This plan of salvation that God has for his people in the Old Testament, his people in the New Testament, his people today, it's all the same plan. All who are justified are justified by Christ. All who are given to the Son are justified by Christ. And this giving to the Son occurs before the foundation of the world. There is one plan, there is one work, and there is one Christ. One sacrifice. Just as it is for the Old Testament saints, so it is for all the people of God. I tell you this because there are many denominations, many flavors of theology that will teach you that the plan of salvation changed. God's economy changed with 
Christ. That God was satisfied in the sacrifices of the Old Testament until Christ came around. Just read Hebrews. So my last point, which has 20 subpoints, I want to talk about sort of why we're exploring theology like this here in Ephesians 1. Aside from the obvious, because Paul does it. Um, The instructions were given in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so... What Paul is doing here in the first 14 verses or so of Ephesians 1 is Paul is exploring the depths of the gospel of Christ. Paul is taking this gospel that is milk, and Paul is expanding his teaching into solid food. So naturally, as we explore Ephesians 1, we are going to expand our teaching into solid food. Remember, this presupposes, and Scripture does too, and we'll see why. The gospel is simple, right? So simple, in fact, that a child can understand it. And not like, you know, we talk about, that 17-year-old's a child. I mean, a little, tiny kid can understand the gospel of Christ. And this is evident from Matthew 18. At that time, starting in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I've always thought about doing a sermon series on dumb things that a disciple said. And it would last for weeks and weeks on end. And this is one of them. Like, why are they even thinking like this? <laughs> I just don't understand. Who's the best? Jesus is the best, dummies. Jesus brings to him a child, and he says, this one, (laughs) just to knock him down a peg. Here's the point I want you to get from this. If belief in the gospel requires a high-level intellectual understanding of theology, what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? What is the faith of a child if faith requires intellectual understanding? theology? Let me answer the question for you. Putting complex intellectual requirements onto belief in the gospel destroys the childlike faith that Christ speaks of in Matthew 18. In fact, 
Doing so makes you guilty of the sin described in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 18. Right? Jesus gives us a warning with this. He doesn't just say, be like a child. He gives the disciples a warning. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so while Jesus is sitting there with the disciples, he grabs a literal child to give an object lesson. But when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name, he's not talking about a literal child there. He's using this literal child as an example, but he is pointing to the childlike faith that he is describing. Whoever receives the one with this childlike faith in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these with childlike faith in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So there are two ways that I want to talk about we might fall afoul of this grave warning. First is legalism and works hunting. It causes children to fear. Testimony of Scripture is clear. This childlike faith is sufficient for full assurance in the work of Christ. Remember we talked about this earlier. Right? That mustard seed faith is sufficient for full assurance in the work of Christ. Full assurance in the promises of Christ. And any teaching that causes this one with this childlike faith to fear that they have not done enough good works or that their faith alone is insufficient for full confidence of salvation destroys this childlike faith. If I look at you and I make you wonder if you're saved because I make observations about the way you live your life, then I destroy your childlike faith. Right? Because this fear of damnation is a sin. Right? It is a sin for the child of God to fear this damnation. And to cause this in others makes you guilty of the sin described here in Matthew 18. It would be better for you to be drowned in the sea. To sow division, to sow fear among the people of God based on your perception of how they should be living. To place a yoke of burden on the people of God based on some work of the law. To cause the people of God to fear. This is what Jesus is talking about. It destroys childlike faith. And the other thing, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, these complex intellectual requirements for faith. Suspicion and heresy hunting causes children to fear. Just as legalism places a burden of works upon the saints, so can your suspicion 
suspicious heart denies Christ by denying that this childlike faith is sufficient. You're not the heresy police, right? You should not be sniffing around for theological errors in your brothers and sisters. Smells like Pelagianism. You are not a divinely appointed drug dog. When you do that, you start to put intellectual requirements on faith, and you cause those with a childlike faith to fear. So, what's the point? When James and I teach up here, we're required to explore the depths of the truth of God with you. We're required to give you this solid food. This deeper understanding, which Paul begins to explore here in Ephesians 1, is essential to the strengthening of your faith. And we'll get here eventually, but Paul gives us the application of this in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it's important for you to grow in your understanding of Scripture so that your foundation is strengthened. Right? Deeper knowledge into the truth of God is what protects you from this wind of doctrine. It secures your faith against the schemes of the world. One of the places we see these winds of doctrine running rampantly is on social media. I've largely quit interacting but I keep an ear to the ground for the things that are going on in some of the, the Christian circles. Every few months, a new pet doctrine blows up all the forums. Someone comes up with something, and all of a sudden, it becomes one of these complex intellectual requirements for salvation, and you've got these theological drug dogs sniffing around everyone, checking to make sure you don't believe the new heresy of the week. I've seen people divide with old friends over something they learned about yesterday. It happens all the time. I've seen it happen so many times. So stop, please. <laughs> stop it. So that is why we explore the depths of theology contextually out of Scripture. 
this, to equip you for the work of the ministry, to protect you from the winds of doctrine, so that you may know when someone comes to put legal requirements on you, you can look at it and say, no, Christ is sufficient for me. So that when you have simple faith, the faith described throughout Scripture, this faith of a child, and someone asks you, yeah, but what's the timing of justification? You can say, the work of Christ is sufficient in justifying his people. I am counted righteous for my faith in that work. It doesn't have to bother you. You can move on with your life and continue to love the saints. So we teach and we grow together. This isn't just what I do and what James does, right? Because you read the Bible for yourself too. And as you fellowship with one another, we encourage one another in the faith. We teach one another what we've been learning. We praise God together as we marvel in his grace taught in scripture. And it is through this deeper teaching that we really see the riches of God's grace. This is what Paul talks about at the end of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There's so much more to see and to understand and to know about God than just what he has done for us. His word is rich in knowledge. His grace is rich. His grace is sufficient for you for all things. And it is all in Christ. One plan, one people. One salvation, one Christ. And his work is sufficient for your peace and for your joy and for your comfort. And when you want to cry out in agony, do it. Cry out to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that it answers our questions. And that when in our flesh we aren't satisfied with your answer to our questions, we know that by the power of the Spirit you have promised to give us peace and comfort in your truth.
God, I pray for all of our people who are not with us this morning, who are dealing with illness, who are traveling. pray that you would bring them healing, guide them safely, and bring them back to us. We pray these things in the name of Christ.